All right, so how many of you read the, read the uh, Sermon on the Mount? That's what we read this week. Raise your hand if you read the Sermon on the Mount. Sweet. I would say that when we go to the Sermon on the Mount, we are in a section of Scripture that if you're a believer in Christ, this section of Scripture, which is the largest single section of teaching that Jesus uh, has throughout the entire Bible, is probably the most well-known. Not all of it is the most well-known, but sections of it. The Beatitudes, the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. As a matter of fact, right now, in the culture that we live in today, the most quoted verse of the Bible is Matthew 7, 1. Judge not lest you be judged, right? So we know something from each of these three chapters that we studied this past week just because they're so familiar to us. And in this, in the sermon that I, that I have today is called A Higher Standard. Because I believe that when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we are given a higher standard. We really are. And we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount today as a whole, not just as a part. Now, we're not going to read every verse, but we are going to reference every part of what, we're going, of what we've read this past week. The reason why, and the reason why it's so important that we do so, is because this is the Sermon on the Mount. This was all one sermon. This was all one teaching. And oftentimes what we do in, in our sermons that we've done is we'll do, we're going to do a 12-week series on the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount for the next year, or two, or four. I've seen that all, seriously. But when Jesus preached this, he preached it one time, one place, and all of this was meant to be together. It ends, and that's where we're going to begin at. We're going to begin at the end. So if you want to go ahead and reference that, we're going to go there in just a moment. Matthew chapter 7, go to the last verses that are there. We're going to reference that in a moment. Because I, I want, as we look at the Word of God today, to realize... That what Jesus proclaims in the Sermon on the Mount is very different than the Americanized gospel that we have inherited and don't even know it. And so when I share with you this Americanized gospel, you're going to hear it and say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, in reality, in and of itself, in the essence of what I'm going to share, nothing. But the lens in which we filter it is not from an American standpoint, biblical. And we're going to look at that. And we're going to look at the difference between those and understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because the Americanized gospel says this, that you and I were broken people because of sin, and Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins, and he rose again that we might have eternal life if we believe in him. Now, on the surface, we listen to that like, what's wrong with that? I mean, I could point out the references in the scripture that support each one of those statements. And on the surface, there's nothing wrong with that. That truly is the gospel. However, in our Americanized understanding of that gospel, we redefine some of those terms that I just mentioned within that little category to an American standard and not a biblical one. 
and it changes everything. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the words of Jesus. Like I said, this whole Sermon on the Mount is all his words. So we're going to look at the words of Jesus in context, this whole thing, and begin to understand the difference between our Americanized, contextualized gospel and the gospel that's actually being preached by Jesus. So, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. Therefore, and it's important, he begins with therefore. This is the ending statement of this sermon. This therefore is everything that precedes it. He is, he is wrapping up. So he's, the therefore doesn't mean the last few verses above or the chapter that we're in. It goes all the way back to chapter 5. Sometimes we don't catch that. And I, I want to, I know I just read one verse of scripture and I'm like going off on a tangent, but I want you guys to understand he's referencing the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount when he says, therefore. Okay? Not just one little section. Because he said a lot. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash." And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. So we hear the words of Jesus when he's talking at the end of this time of teaching. He inextricably ties the obedience to his commands with the salvation of our soul. Now, please understand, we're not talking about a works-based salvation. And I don't want anybody walking away from here saying, Jeremy said we're supposed to work for it. But they're tied together and you can't just separate them. There's no place in the scripture where you can. We look at Jesus and we look at the end conclusion of Matthew, which we will, I guarantee you, both me and Mark are going to reference over and over and over again. Because much like the Sermon on the Mount, when we get to this last statement here, we get to the therefore that summarizes this entire teaching that Jesus has talked about. That's exactly what we see in the Great Commission at the very end because it summarizes the whole reason Jesus came and died. And so we look at the Sermon on the Mount And we look at, excuse me, the Great Commission at the end, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, because of that previous statement, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. That sounds very much like what we're hearing here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. 
those who listen to my words and put them into practice is like one who builds on the rock. What we're called to do in making disciples is to go to baptize and to teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded. Isn't that the same message? He hasn't changed it. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to be as disciples in Jesus Christ. However, the Americanized belief is that of intellectual assent. The idea that I can believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, that he rose three days later, and if I believe in him, I will have eternal life. And all it means is mere intellectual assent. How many of you watch Jeopardy or have watched Jeopardy before? Raise your hand. Okay? And then I always love when they have the Bible categories because I rock on those. I'm like, dude, just give me a Bible category. I do. It's like, we just go right down there. Yeah! And I love it when there's a contestant that seems to know their Bible, right? And my question always comes down, in my mind, do they know their Bible because of the questions that they might get asked on Jeopardy? Or do they know their Bible because Jesus is their Lord and Savior? There's a difference, right? There really is. One could give you all the right answers because they got them all right on the Jeopardy questions, right? But only one of them can change your mind and heart. And unfortunately, the American mindset concerning belief and how it's described and portrayed in many churches in America is mere intellectual assent. And we don't see that anywhere in the Scripture. Nowhere. Don't believe me? Let's go back. Just a few verses from chapter 7, starting in verse 15, talking about a tree and its fruit. Just want to read that entire section right there. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. See, there's going to be a lot of people who think they know Jesus who don't know Jesus. There's going to be a lot of people who have taken on an Americanized version or some other version that's out there of what they think is the gospel of Jesus Christ from mere intellectual descent that doesn't touch on their heart or change their life or anything like that. And they're going to stand before Jesus and say, look, I did all of these things in front of all of these different people to show that I was really a follower of you. And Jesus is going to very plainly tell them, according to his words, not mine, I am. Never knew you. 
You know, Pastor Mark and myself, we very, very clearly tell you guys the importance of being in the Word of God. We tell you you need to be in the Word all the time. For, not for our sake. Not for our sake at all, but for your sake. So you know what the words of Jesus say. So you know that the message of the Word of God stands clear. And so this whole idea, again, of, of works and belief being inextricably tied together is found in so many different places in the scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, which we usually only quote 8 and 9. We don't quote 10. But 10, when you, when you take 10 away from 8 and 9, it changes everything concerning the meaning of what you're reading. So 8 and 9 is, for by grace that you've been saved through faith and not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. That's 8 and 9. Now when we stop there, we're like, see, it's not our works. Our works don't save us, and I agree. But verse 10 is very important, because it's called context. You know? It's this old joke of a guy who was reading the Bible saying, Lord, 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 um, what should I do? I, I need to know what you would want me to do next. And he, he decided that he would open the Bible and whatever message was right there, that's what he would do. And so he opens the Bible and it says, and then Judas went out and hung himself. Reading the Bible out of context is a lot like that. We hang ourselves. So what does verse 10 say of Ephesians chapter 2? For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in. That changes everything from verses 8 and 9. If I quote verse 8 and 9 out of context, it's all Jesus, it's not me that saves me. Absolutely true. First of all, that's absolutely true. But there's no response on the end. Verse 10 shatters that. Because verse 10 says, there's absolutely a response. I'm God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he created for me to do beforehand, that I need to walk in those things. It's a big difference. The idea that Jesus got me, it doesn't mean any change in me whatsoever. James chapter 2, verses 18 and 19 attacks this very same line of thinking. I, it's true. I know, I know, I know it's sad, but it's true. So, I love it. So, James chapter 2, verses 18 and 19 does the same thing. He says, you have faith, I have works. And he goes on and says, you show me your faith without your works, I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and tremble. See, exactly the same thing. So what is James saying? Intellectual assent isn't enough. That's not the type of belief you find anywhere in the word of God. Paul says the same thing. Intellectual assent isn't enough for we're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. There has to be some transformative property that happens in the inmost being of us. Because of the sacrifice of Christ. That's what we're promised throughout the word of God. That we're a new creation, right? The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You know, part of the reason we have you guys in the word of God is, is not just for this idea of intellectual assent. 
so that, that there's more to it than that. It's the recognition of when we're being sold a false and wrong, a, a bad, uh, I don't even know how to say the phrase, a false bill of goods, right? That you and I will recognize because we know the original so well that a counterfeit just stands out. If you guys know the word of God, Jesus said you will know who those false teachers are. doesn't say that you, you won't recognize them. You might recognize them. You might get hoodwinked. That's not what he says. He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down through the fire. Thus, by their fruit, talking about false teachers, false prophets, by their fruit, you will recognize them. That's the importance of knowing the word of God. That's the importance of comparing the things that I teach and Pastor Mark's teach back to the word of God again. We're held to that standard because I want to be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ as he proclaims it. Not as the world proclaims it, not as our culture proclaims it, not partial truths to salve our souls so there's no sacrifice on it. I want what Jesus says. And there are a couple things that he says in this passage that hurt our American sensibilities as it pertains to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the redemption of our souls. And the first one is this. We are evil people. We are evil people. Our, our sensibilities of our age today want to say things like broken. And me and Mark have used this phrase before. We're broken. All of us are broken. We're fallen. But our culture has kind of sanitized those words. To make them mean something that the scripture does not mean. And so when we hear broken, well somebody else could break us. That might not even be our fault. If we're fallen, it just means that I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. And maybe I can do enough good things in order to earn my way into heaven. God, God will accept me and to be able to do that. Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, shatters that. Absolutely shatters that. So if we go back just a few verses before, you'll notice I'm kind of going backwards. Which is normal for me. Anyway, so... Matthew 7, verse 9. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Do you notice what Jesus did there? He acknowledged that evil people can do good things. Evil people can do good things. Evil people can be good parents. Evil people can do really good community things for the community around them. Evil people can do all types of good things. They're still evil. You and I are evil. In and of ourselves, we are evil. 
And I want this to be understood. So when Mark says broken, when I say fallen, those are other words that we could rightfully use. But what you need to hear when you hear that is that we are evil. Left to our own devices, we do what we want to do at the expense of other people and of God. That's just who we are. We have, that's the fallen, sinful nature. It's a terrible, terrible thing to have. All of us have it. I mean, this is exactly why Jesus, when we go back to the latter half of Matthew chapter 5, think about what he starts to talk about. He, t- he talks about him being the fulfillment of the law, and then he starts talking about the law, and he starts talking about murder. And what does he do? He doesn't just include murder. You've heard it said of all, do not murder. But I tell you, don't have hatred in your heart for your brother. Anybody who's angry is danger of the fire of hell. If you say, you fool. If you say, raka. This standard, this is a higher standard, right? Because everybody else, we kind of like to do the mere minimum. I've actually heard people say, well, I'm not a murderer. Jesus is like, I'm sorry, that doesn't make you righteous. Congratulations, you didn't murder somebody today. How wonderful. You're still evil. Seriously. And that's what this this extrapolation that we see in Matthew chapter 5 is all about. It's making this standard so you understand this is God's standard. And all of us find ourselves in there. Because he moves from murder and he moves from there to adultery, right? You have heard it was said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in their heart. Guys, I'm going to speak to all you. You're guilty. You know why? Because I'm a guy. And I'm guilty. The age in which we are living in right now tempts every single one of us as guys to look at women as objects. It's always been that way. Jesus is exposing that it's always been that way. The passions on our heart drive us to insanity, right? really does. The pressures of trying not to see people that way is so hard. I fail so many times. Sincerely, I wish I didn't. That's why I know I need Jesus. In our day and age where we have our phones out and and those types of images are more abundant and plentiful and available with nobody else knowing about it, man, the torture on each of our souls because we don't want Jesus to say those words. We want to be able to say, well, I didn't commit adultery. When in reality, guess what? Looking at a woman lustfully, And ladies, same thing with you. Looking at a guy lustfully tells us we've fallen short, but that fallen short is the exposure that we are evil. We don't want to hear that, but it's true. And he would go on from there, and he says, he talks about divorce. It says anybody who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I tell you that unless it's marital unfaithfulness, You force that person, if they marry another, to commit adultery. In other words, these are my rules. I set these things up. And yet, we change those things, don't we? Based upon our convenience, 
because we're evil. That's, that's what the sin nature does. And it talks about oaths next. You've heard people say, don't, you know, don't, do not break your oath, but keep your oath you made to the Lord. And Jesus says, don't swear. Don't swear by heaven above because that's God's throne. Don't swear by the earth because that's his footstool. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Anything more than that comes from the evil one. Is sinful. James would repeat that as well. Think about it. Why is that important? Because if I have to tell you that this time I really promised to do it, Mark. Mark, I know you wanted me to do this last week. I didn't do it last week like I said I was going to do. But this week, I promise I'm going to do it. Let me, I just Give me a stack of Bibles and I will just promise on those Bibles. When we start doing that, we're basically saying my word as is isn't good enough. If I have to make an oath to you that my word is going to mean something because I'm adding something to it, whether I'm swearing to God in heaven, swearing to earth on a footstool, swearing on a stack of Bibles, swearing on whatever is precious to me. How many of you, okay, so Madeline talked about Lord of the Rings. She's going to watch Lord of the Rings today. How many of you have seen Lord of the Rings? Raise your hand. So, so if you've seen Lord of the Rings, you've got, you've got Gollum who is there. How do, do they get his initial allegiance? By swearing on the precious. The ring is treacherous, but it will hold you to your word. You know why? Because there was no other way in which they could trust him. They needed something greater than his word. You know, you and I, same thing. When you and I add something... We show our untrustworthiness. And you know what that shows? We're evil. Evil. And we don't like that word, do we? Because I'm applying this and I'm saying the one word that is, like I said, just wrecks all of our sensibilities, but I'm a good person. No, you're not. That's Jesus' whole point for bringing all of this up. The whole idea, an eye for an eye, a a tooth for a tooth. And he says, if somebody forces you to go one mile, go two with them. You've heard it said, love your your friends and hate your enemies. I tell you, love your enemies. Be like your Father in heaven who allows the rain to fall on both the just and the unjust. And has their crops bloom in season. Think about it a lot different than the world around us, even different than the way we want to treat people who we consider our enemies. Because we've adopted an Americanized culture of what the Word of God says rather than what Jesus says concerning the Word of God and ourselves. Colossians chapter 1 backs this up. If we go to Colossians 1, if I go to Colossians 1, verse 21 I want you to think of what Paul's talking about. He's just talked about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. In verse 21, he says this, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If, oh, that, that little word, that little world messes with so many things. If I just stop right there with that without accusation, see, he saves me from my sins. 
He makes me holy in the sight of God. Listen to the if. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you have heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Like It's not like you can just say, I believe this and then I can go about and do my own thing. Paul's not saying that. There's an if that's involved there. You are saved. You are without blemish if you continue to walk in him. Continue to believe in what you first hoped in. See, this is what Jesus is setting up. Because they're inextricably tied together. His finished work on the cross, our free gift, and our obedience can't be separated. They just can't be. Our obedience isn't what saves us. But our obedience does tell us who we are. Because chapter 6 And as we get into Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6 is all about the heart. Everything about chapter 6 is the heart. Everything. Giving to the needy. Don't do it in front of other people. Some people want to announce how much they've given so that they'll be so nice and so recognized. Remember, this is all coming back to that therefore. Remember at the end. And the false teachers and the false prophets, look, Lord, look at what I did. Look at this awesome thing that I did. I gave $1 million. I had $4 billion, but I gave a million dollars, and look how great I am because I gave that. When you give to the needy, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. And your Father who sees what you do in secret will reward you. And when you pray... Don't pray like the hypocrites because they think that they're going to be heard with all of their loud, their, their loud noises. But he prays so eloquently. How many of you have been intimidated by somebody who can pray better than you? Pray better than you. How many of you have been intimidated by that? Raise your hand. I'm not that eloquent. Psh, I don't see anything in the scripture that talks about eloquence. Jesus actually uses a parable where he talks about a tax collector and a Pharisee. And the Pharisee there in the town, oh Lord. I thank you that I'm not like other people. I tithe everything that I have and I'm so awesome. I'm glad that I give to the poor and the needy and do all of these things and I'm not even like this tax collector beside me. And the tax collector wouldn't even lift his head to heaven, beats his breast, he says, Lord, forgive me a sinner. And he says, that man walked away justified. You and I being intimidated because we don't pray good enough, what kind of stuff is that? That's not the word of God. That's not a thing about the word of God. They think they'll be heard because of their many words. I tell you, when you pray, go to your closet. I've never prayed in my closet before. I mean, you saw War Room. They made a prayer closet. How many of you have ever thought about making a prayer closet? Never prayed in, but the idea isn't so much prayer closet. It's the idea that not everybody has to see you praying. Who are you when nobody else is looking? And your father who sees who you are will reward you. And when you pray, pray this. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and glory forever and ever. That's how we're supposed to pray. Daily bread, daily provision, forgiveness for others, forgiveness for our own. Because he's dealing with the heart. Right? 
That's who we're supposed to be all the time. But if you're just here on Sunday and this is your show time, this is your holy time because you're going to come into this place and say, I go to church every Sunday. Who cares? It's not about this place. I mean, it is. We should be gathering together. We should be meeting together out of obedience because I want to be obedient to him. Because I want to be taught to obey everything he commanded. And this is part of that obedience. And this is what I want to do. Not just on a Sunday morning. But on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday when I'm at work. And when it's hard. These are the things he's talking about. He goes on to fasting and says the same thing. When you're fasting, don't go around mournfully. Oh, I haven't had food for seven days, but I'm doing it for God. Oh. Wash your face. Look normal. If it's that important that you're praying about it, that you're denying yourself sustenance, God will see it. Don't need to make a, an announcement about those things. Finally, he talks about treasures in heaven. And not to worry. Store up for yourself treasure in heaven. Where moth and rust do not destroy. Where thieves don't come in and break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. See, Jesus is dealing with the heart and saying those who are transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ will have the heart to want to do what he wants, not when everybody's eye is on them, but even when they're not. So what do you invest in? Where do you spend your money? Seriously. We live in an affluent society. I loved Mia's testimony. We live in such an affluent society. Where are you spending your money? What are your priorities? If I look at your checkbook, where is your heart? Where is your treasure? Throughout all of this, you know what's interesting to me? When we get to the whole point of do not worry at the bottom, you know the two things that Jesus mentions? Clothes and food. That's it. That same theme is found in 1 Timothy chapter 6. As long as we have clothes and food, we will be content. That's the same thing that's said in James chapter 2. If you see a brother or sister who is destitute and without food and clothing, that is the barometer. That is, that is what we're supposed to do as Christians to say that's what provision is. That's Jesus, that's James, that's Paul. Everybody's saying the same thing. You and I, provision, we think a whole lot differently, don't we? We do. Where's our treasure? Again, that's where our heart's at. Where we invest our where we invest our monies. See, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, when he begins, he begins with the type of people he is calling us to be. He starts with the end in mind. This is who you are. You want to be blessed? These are the people who are blessed. Let's read that list real quick. Matthew chapter 5. Now when he saw the crowds and he went up on the mountainside and sat down, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. So far, so good. We're all happy with that. These are awesome things, right? 
Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they, they uh, what do they do? Okay, let's see. Hang on, I lost my spot. Oh, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see what? Your good deeds. And praise your Father in heaven. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, throughout the entirety of the Word of God, our faith in Jesus Christ and our obedience to Him that leads to deeds that, that He wants us to do are inextricably tied together. You cannot separate them. It's not possible. Yes, we are saved by faith through grace through His finished sacrifice. But that finished sacrifice, in order for it to mean something, has to transform us through the power of the Holy Spirit to be the type of people He's called us to be. Anything less than that is not salvation. Not my word, His, throughout the Word of God. We just can't say, I'm going to leave church today, that was a really great sermon. But I'm going to go on living my life however I want. Got my, got my spiritual, you know, dose of, uh, dose of spirituality. I got my spiritual mocha for the day. God is calling you and I to so much more. To so much more. And it starts with belief in Christ that leads to an obedience, a caring for what he says concerning our life. Will any of us be perfect? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We're going to struggle with sin until Jesus comes back. But man, I I don't want to. I'd love to overcome a lot of things that I still struggle with, wouldn't you? I still want to be that faithful person in the silence and in, in my room when nobody else is looking as I am before you right now. That should be you. No matter what this world says, because if we stand for Jesus and we do the things that Jesus wants us to do, according to Jesus' own words, we're going to be insulted, persecuted, reviled because of our obedience to Christ. Compromise to that is not a form of salvation. You and I are a city on a hill. That's what we are, not to be hidden, to be out there so that everybody knows who we are. You know, one of the things that I love about my kids, I've tried to raise them in the Lord, do the best that I can uh, to do that, me and Shannon both. And one of the things that they do better than me, it's like light years better than me. They love talking to others about Jesus. They, for them, it's just like a priority. They want to talk to others about Jesus. Kathleen comes home yesterday. Guess what? She's talking about somebody talking about wanting to talk to him about Jesus. She, more than anybody else, we had these cards. I, I pulled them out because we still have them. We had these cards of invitation 
that you guys can personalize. We did this a couple years ago. So I have a lot of these cards that are out there. It has a QR code, so if they scan it, they go straight to our website. You write your name and your contact information so that you can invite somebody to church. I put a, about you know, 18, 20 of these packs out there. There's 50 in each one of these rubber band packs. I'd encourage you guys to go out and do that and start being that city on a hill. We want to hand this out to everybody. And yet we're so afraid to do it. And I just want to be honest with you. I've been a Christian 30 years. And I can say that my kids' enthusiasm I want in my life. As a matter of fact, Sherry Ann has been challenging our life group, saying we need to start reaching out to somebody. She texted earlier this week and said, hey, I got to do this. Our accountability to one another to be that light on the hill is so important because it's part of the good deeds that God's called us to. We want the kingdom of God to grow. We have to say something. We have to do something. Because we can all, myself included, get complacent of saying, wow, I'm glad I'm in Jesus. Dude, it's not about me being in Jesus. It's about them being in Jesus. Because he died for everybody. And I don't care if it's your worst enemy at work. If Jesus doesn't change their life, there will be no change whatsoever of any type of meaningful change that can happen. It's all just fluff. Guys, this is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. This is where our priorities ought to be. This is where our treasure should be. This is why the sermon put together the way that it is and us discussing it as an entire unit is so important because when we lose context, we lose what Jesus is actually saying. We kind of pick it apart and say, there's this part and then there's this part. He talked about the whole thing. And you can't take it apart from one another. Who are you in Christ? What has God called us to be as the people of God? A light on the hill. Salt of the earth. We're called to be these things to a lost and dying world. Because without Jesus We've got to recognize we're evil. Evil. We're not made good of our own accord. We're made good by his finished work and how we're seen through God. Let us not forget we still, as Christians, at times do evil things. It's called sin that we need to repent of. But my hope is Jesus. I look forward to that day, one day, where all of these fights that sometimes I win and sometimes I lose as I'm trying to be obedient to Jesus. These fights will be over because I'm going to be before my Lord and Savior. And he's going to say, it's finished, it's done. I look forward to that. And I want others in this world who are evil, who are struggling. And as much as I'm struggling and you're struggling to know of the hope that we have in Christ. But it only happens. It really does. It only happens when you and I recognize that's got to be more than this. It's got to be more than this. I want to encourage you guys. Like I said, there's about 18 more packs that are out there. 50 apiece, it's like 900. If I've done my math right. If I've done it wrong, so you can tell me afterwards. We have the possibility of reaching out to a lost and dying world. Filling this place with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know we're going through the word of God. 
you have the possibility of starting good conversations. Looking at where you spend your treasure so your heart's in the right place. Let's proclaim the full gospel of Jesus Christ because it's a higher standard than what the world believes. And let's start living it here. Would you stand with me? God, I just want to thank you for our time together today. Our study of your word and the words of Jesus. The call to a much higher standard. Lord, I just I just freely confess I fall short so much. So many things that I still struggle with as a believer in Christ. And I, I know someday, one day, when you return, that struggle will be done. My hope is not in myself. My hope is in you, O oh Lord. Until then, I pray that you will help me to spend myself on you. To seek first your kingdom, your righteousness, and trust that everything else will be provided for if I do so. Let me look for opportunities at my work, dear Heavenly Father. Let me look for opportunities in the places that I go to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be the light and the city on the hill that you've called me to be, dear Heavenly Father. To hold out the hope that only comes through Jesus. God, I just pray, Lord, I pray for an obedience in my own life and in everybody else's life here, Lord, that transcends what happens on Sunday morning or whenever our life groups meet, Lord, that it's a desire of our heart because through the Holy Spirit, you're trying to transform us into the likeness and image of your son. Just help us, Lord, to live for you, to build our foundation on the rock by hearing the words that you speak, and we treasure them so much that we can't help but put them into action. That's the type of faith you want us to have. That's the type of faith that will change the world. And we thank you that it's ours to give away. In Jesus' name, amen.